This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. listening to 3RRR and this is Plato's Cave, a film criticism show that's going to come at you until 8pm. My name's Thomas Cordwell, I'm joined by my co-hosts Josh Nelson, Alexandra, Heller, Nicholas, good evening to you both. Hi Thomas. <laughs> good evening all. We've actually got a quite a big show I think, lots of little bits and pieces we're going to be trying to cover. The main things we're going to do though, are we're going to look at the... To begin with, the independent American horror film, It Follows. This is a film that did the festival circuit last year, but it's recently been released in various territories around the world and has very quickly developed a very strong following. But um, Oh, wow, I didn't even do that deliberately. I was actually going to make that joke later, so thanks for that. We'll then take a look at another <laughs> classic DVD. It, uh, it's always a good week when we, when we get to do a classic. Uh, this is a DVD in Blu-ray re-release that we're going to look at called Scum. A 1979 film from the UK, which was notorious at the time, and I think still is, for uh, the violence and brutality that it portrayed. Starring a very, very young Ray Winston, Scum looks at life inside a youth detention centre. And finally, we'll take a look at The Green Prince. This is a documentary that got a small release last year. Um, we all missed it, but it's finally been released on home entertainment, so we were finally able to catch up on it. Um, covering a period in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict during the late 1990s to the late 2000s, it's about a Palestinian man, uh, Mossab Hassan Youssef, who was the son of a Hamas leader, but ended up working undercover for Shin Bet, Israel's internal security service. Before we go any further, though, I'd like to actually just address a piece of correspondence we received. You can always get in touch with us, Plato's Cave Film at gmail.com. If you go to the Plato's Cave page on the Triple R website, there's also links to that as well as Facebook and Twitter. Um, and this is a really thoughtful, interesting email about our review of Giovanni's Island, which was only last week, wasn't it? And it was indeed, yeah. Seems like a long time ago. Uh, it's from a, a gentleman named Stacey who obviously really knows his stuff and just wanted to, I think, set the record straight about a few of the aspects of, of anime and, and the whole uh, the, the whole way we discuss it. He raised some really interesting points. He first of all pulls me up for the fact I referred to anime as a genre. He uh, he gave me a free pass though and assumed I was speaking off the cuff, which I was. That was actually a mistake. I didn't mean to do that. Anime, of course, is a medium. It, it's a form. It's anime is anything that's animated. I mean, it's it's the generic word Japanese use for the animated form. Uh, he wanted to make it clear that films like the Studio Ghibli. Viewer, uh, much um, more representative of anime than, say, some of the more extreme stuff like Legend of the Overfeed, which I think we did mention. I feel like that. Kind of as a joke, but that I think it is worth mentioning that extreme stuff is actually a very minority aspect. Then why did I only know those guys? <laughs> well, I remember, me I remember in the 90s, so there, was just this, there was this craze for that extreme stuff. There and was. Australia it was, was the... flooded with the most ridiculous examples of, of anime. And it wasn't representative of all of what was it out was, there. It was the time of Faces of Death and Legend of the It was the cult, the cult cinema VHS yeah, revolution here. That's, I think that's what it got in on. Yeah, it was part of that. Um, but for a while, I think Jap- Japanese animation had a really bad name for itself because we saw one extreme and not the rest. But I think we understand it's broad now. I mentioned in the review of Giovanni's Island that some of the characters looked a bit Charlie Brownish at points, and this is really good. Stacey uh, has told us what this is all about. It's a technique that's quite common called SD, or super deformed, or chibi, which is a slang term meaning cute 
or little, uh, when characters are deliberately represented in a highly exaggerated way to make them resemble small children. So I, I did not know that. It's very much a part of this, this medium. I almost said genre then. It's a part <laughs> of this medium, which is uh, interesting. And the, the final thing I do want to quickly mention that he brought up with us is I referenced the point that I didn't understand the context of the story, Night of the Galactic Railroad, Railroad in the film, which wasn't necessarily a critique of the film. I was just mentioning that. And as Stacey quite rightly pointed out, it's very much a part of Japanese culture. So I think saying that you didn't understand that and maybe suggesting it was a fault of the film is a bit like saying a Western film that has a biblical reference but doesn't explain the reference is at fault. We've talked about this with Chinese cinema, how there's a lot of stuff that in Chinese cinema it's assumed knowledge and it's not necessarily the fault of the film if it doesn't communicate that. Yeah, I was just going to jump in. I didn't take that as a criticism of the film when you mentioned it last week. I thought that was almost a disclaimer that I'm sure there's a level of this yeah. film that we're not getting, but that wasn't available to at least you or to me. I mean, I mentioned, I flagged that there was an important, like a canonical text in, in Japanese culture, but with that, with the caveat that even I wasn't aware of the deeper levels and meanings in which the film was, was exploring that. But look, a really interesting point. So actually, thank you, Stacey. It was actually it was a lovely email. We got correspondence. Yeah, Thank you, Stacey. Actually told us some things there that we didn't know about. Witty and informative. Let's now take a look at It Follows. We're going to get emails about this one, <laughs> I can tell you. Are you ready to send your emails, people? Well, It Follows is pretty much a pretty big deal in horror film circles at the moment. The plot is straightforward enough. It follows a group of teenagers who have to deal with the fact that when you have sex, a zombie or a monster will appear... Um, and will try to kill you until you have sex with someone else and infect them. This is basically a sexual version of The Ring, but it's not a cursed videotape that issues the death warrant. It's shagging. Now, The Ring franchise was flagged not just in terms of the plot mechanics of this film for me, but also that both uh, Ring 2, I believe it is, and, and It Follows have a climactic scene at a swimming pool. Um, I thought a lot about Ring 2 when I was watching that sequence in It Follows. The director, David Robert Mitchell, has spoken quite often of the influence of George Romero and John Carpenter on this film, and you feel that in absolutely every frame, not just in the visuals, but for me in particular, specifically in the soundtrack, the amazing soundtrack for this film. I think it's one of the strongest things going for It Follows, the beautiful disaster piece soundtrack that really evokes a lot of the music that John Carpenter himself made for films like Halloween. This is, I, I'm quite happy, quite comfortable saying, it's a really strong horror film. It's very atmospheric. It's confidently, beautifully made. Micah Munro, um, she was also in Adam Wingard's The Guest, and I think on the back of these two films, she's absolutely earning the reputation as a really key scream queen. She's quite remarkable in both of these films. Um, the, the film has a lot of really vocal fans, and I guess that leads me to the elephant in the room a little bit that, that we might open up a little more tonight. I've seen this film three times now and, and there's just one little factor about it that I'm still not quite sure I've got my head around. Do you guys want to jump in here or are you happy no, for me to... No, I think you should lead off with this and then... We'll to vent my spleen a little bit. I mean, people may have heard me talk about this on The Breakfast. It's where I gushed. I'm very much in the love this film, it's love a, being in the moment. Haven't even, even thought about the subtext too much because I just enjoyed it so much. And I think that's really important. It's a beautiful... And it was made to be a, a textural exercise. It's beautiful. I mean, it's so beautifully made. Mm. And it very much... It's very creepy. So come um, on, tell me why I should hate it. Okay. Oh no! Well, <laughs> not not, not hate it. I mean, I, I I don't. I'm not going to argue that anybody should hate this film. And and I guess what I'm talking about more is the discourse surrounding this film yep. that is problematic for me, rather than the film itself. As I said, I, I think there's a lot of really positive, beautiful things about this movie. At, 
it's called, this is a film where sex kills people. Sex is not something with a positive outcome, full stop. Now, I personally don't think the film is sexist as such. I think Micah Munro is far too strong and sympathetic a character for that. Um, but I think that there is a puritanical aspect to the fact that these kids, even when they enjoy sex, are not really given any way out of sex fundamentally being a murder act. Um, there's a lot of different interpretations swirling around the internet about this movie. Some people are saying it's tackling STDs. Um, there's a couple, two or three really interesting incest references in this film that I only picked up in the last time that I saw it. Uh, there's been some, some critics have argued that there's a sort of subtle critique of uh, rape culture going on in this movie. I guess the, the most popular argument that I've come across is that the film is that the, this sexuality stuff is really a, a sort of hollow or empty reference to the classical 70s, 80s era of slasher film, that the film is very overtly uh, referencing um, the kind of trope where the promiscuous are killed first. Um, I have to admit, I'm not really convinced that any of these really hold water. None of them are really solid enough to undo for me the surface puritanical sex is bad thing. Uh, the director himself has been quite open um, and said that he's less than um, he's really less interested in, in didactic themes in this movie than he is texture and mood, which absolutely I think he's succeeded in doing. So okay, cool. But what I do know is this. Whether we love or hate It Follows, these debates raise really crucial questions about gender and film, ideology and film more generally. The real drumbeat that I hear being issued from its defenders is to let go of sexual politics, that it's not about that and stop trying to make it about that. Now, I have a huge problem with that kind of position. You don't defend a film where sex is a weapon, which It Follows quite literally is, by accusing some people who are uncomfortable with this fact as somehow missing the point or being killjoys or focusing on the wrong thing. I think that we have to... I think it's very valid to allow a space for people to be troubled by this if they choose to. It Follows deserves the praise that it's getting, um, as I said, and I keep saying I think it's a very good horror film. But the take-home lesson for me is more about this discourse about it, that sometimes we're not as ideologically pure as we perhaps flatter ourselves that we are. We need to stop thinking, and I've, I've argued this before, I think it's really useful to stop thinking of film in terms of progressive or regressive binaries if we want to start thinking through some of the really complex questions that a film like this raises, whether it means to or not. My concern is that if we open the door to ignoring the ideological factors of this film because we like the film, then we really have to apply that to all film. Can we say the same thing about Death Wish? for example, just a random <laughs> kind of point. But, you know, it's like, well, actually, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, not that I'm comparing It Follows and Death Wish. That would be insane. But it's like once we give a what, film a free pass for its ideology, then I think we need to... I think that leads us to tricky places because we need to be able to apply that to other films. And I'm not personally or professionally really keen to do that. I don't think anyone in this room yeah. would be. That's why we do this. Do you want to jump in, Joshua? Can I attempt to rebut some of that? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to hear you because I haven't. I, did, yeah. I missed your review on the breakfast, so I'm yeah. keen to hear what you. Well, I didn't cover this. I, I, I almost saw this film as some kind of video art that was a postmodern pastiche of a certain genre, which is which are these horror films from the 70s and the 80s, very overtly referencing the very troubling sexual politics of those films. I don't know how sophisticated it's making. 
the commentary is, but I think it's very deliberately raising these ideas and some of these images to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable about the ideology behind these films. So it almost feels like an art piece, a video art piece that's taking these these tropes and these these visual cues. I, I, this is a really random example, but I thought of some of Tracy Moffat's work where she does images of colonialism and she throws these on screen as a video art piece to comment on the way colonialist attitudes are ingrained in our culture. That's kind of what I got from this. At the worst, maybe it could be accused of hipster chauvinism, that kind of trend of if we be ironic about it, it's okay. Um, you know, but, and this is something that's been labelled everything from American apparel ads, which I think is fair enough, even to Mad Men, saying that just doing retrospective chauvinism is still indulging in chauvinism. I, I don't think that's there, though. I think everything about this film is so deliberately kind of dreamlike it's designed to put you a little bit off guard um and i thought about our review of when animals dream where we talked about how that film was a reflection of societal of social anxieties where if we didn't like that film we could have easily said it's a film representing the worst attitudes towards women I wonder if that's sort of what's going on here as well. It's it's an interesting point because what we really have here is the difference between intent and reception yep which is a difficult one to unpack in a one-hour program. Um, Like, I absolutely agree with you, and I have no doubt, and and certainly all the interviews that I've read with the director, the film has very much been intended in that way. Mm. I don't think that makes it less problematic in terms of reception, however. I think it would be a very easy film to just interpret as maintaining the thing that perhaps it's doing a that perhaps it's trying to critique. I think it's very Um, deliberately provocative, and I think it's silly of us to turn a blind eye to it, absolutely, yeah. There's a lot to talk about, and it's worth seeing, aside from the fact that it is so powerfully made, but Mm. I I do think that these issues surrounding it, is it it critiquing or is it maintaining? And I I feel that there's an ambivalence there, a very deliberate ambivalence, but I, I, I just don't like the tone that I'm seeing online where people really hammering other people for having issues about the gender politics. I yeah, well, I think we, we, have to allow we can all agree space. on that. Yeah. That's ridiculous, of course. This is exactly the perfect kind of film to explore these issues. Yes, yes. Speaking of which... Right. <laughs> um, I find it strange that, A, this is, is a film that's been embraced so warmly and so broadly. Like you said, it has such a, a strong, like a feverish following. Mm. And it also st- strange in terms of, of the way in which this is the film that's, that's brought this discussion to the fore. Uh, I'm actually going to take a step back and then I'm going to move back into the, the gender discussion because I, I don't want to just give a negative rant about this film. I, like you, Alex, I'm sure, Thomas, you feel the same way. I think the score is, is wonderful. I think it's a wonderfully atmospheric score. I think it, it clearly riffs off, like you mentioned, Carpenter. I think it's like it's the, the way in which it evokes the first Nightmare on Elm Street film, particularly in the look of this film, the smoke and the use of the and the final girl sort of um, framework. I think is very Craven esque. Yeah, yeah. And I, I liked all that, and I also liked tonally the beginning of the film, the sparseness in it. There's there's a distinctive directorial stamp here that that says this is my film and I'm doing something slightly different. The delivery of the dialogue has a sparseness to it. The pacing is a sort of a slow burn type of narrative. And I, and I like that. I, I enjoyed the, the tonal aspects, you know, the way in which it felt like there was a, a creative stamp behind this. This wasn't just trotting out a kind of a join the dots genre piece. Um, and also I think that the, the premise itself is, is wonderful. It's such a promising, potentially promising, fruitful premise. And this is where I, I, my frustrations with the film begin because I don't think it ever lives up to the premise. I don't think it ever really wants to engage with the premise on, on, any, on any level. I think it's, it's a, a fantastic idea to explore issues of gender and sexuality. And again, it's not the filmmaker's fault for not wanting to. It's just this is, I mean, in terms of 
terms of reception, that those moments where we have a girl who has become the the target of the the it and uh that automatically provokes issues of will she sleep with someone else to remove the threat or to to pass it on and at those junctures of the film that happen probably three or four key moments where we see the potential for that or indeed where that scene appears to take place the filmmaker skips it it's almost like he doesn't want to even get his hands dirty with dealing with those moments and i found i found that that really kind of frustrating and I found it almost icky particularly there's a scene and I don't want to just sort of go through all the kind of key moments but there's a moment where later we see her at the beach she starts to strip off and look I have to say females are pretty poorly clad throughout all of this film but she strips off and she walks towards there's three guys on a boat the kind of typical bohunks from you know the 80s 70s 80s sort of beach film and then it sort of infers, or maybe this is just my interpretation, that there's been some sort of sexual congress, either group sex or whatever, and then we see her in a car crying afterwards. And it, there's no real commitment to what's actually taken place or how the effect of that or, or what she's undergone. And I thought those were the moments to to put us on side with her and to try and understand the the I guess the the response to having the it and then the responsibility that goes with that, and this is I guess on a on a more superficial level, a less less ideological level, I found this film really in, inconsistent, and this is a film rife with logical inconsistencies. And part, some people have said, well, that's the point that the it is supposed to just change its rules, and we never know its rules, and and it, and you know sometimes it's following, and sometimes it's sitting, and sometimes it's changes. But for me, that every time there was a logical inconsistency that came up, and I think this film was rife with them it took me out of the narrative so i never really felt invested i didn't i didn't feel the sense of dread or the creepiness i just had an increasing sense of frustration and and almost almost to the point of saying these are continuity errors like this is this makes no sense it's you know it felt like the filmmaker to be honest it felt like the filmmaker was just making it up as they went along as the film went along and and that sadly i guess to, to my detriment just took me out of the film completely goodness <laughs> Everything you described was a plus for me. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, I think the idea of, of having a, a conceit where the threat can change its appearance, I think, is, is, is so rife for possibilities for a horror film. And yet, f- from an audience point of view, it's so obvious what the it is in every scene because they're almost always either naked or clad in kind of dirty underwear. So there's never that sense of the paranoia. Like, where's the crowd scene where a character has to so, sort of search around to see where the threat is, is coming from? I mean, that's what the filmmaker builds kind of the body ru- snatchers idea. Yeah, the, the builds the rules up to, and then we we don't feel like we're ever on side to feel that that sense of dread. Oh wow, I got it. I got that dread. I this film got under my skin in a really delicious way, and a lot of it was the cinematography. I like the fact that they did those beautiful tracking shots or three sixty degree shots, and you just never knew what element in frame would then become important. And you know, there were always figures in the background, and then you'd you'd suddenly latch on to a figure, and sometimes it was the wrong figure, and other times it was right, and sometimes. Sometimes you'd see it before the characters and... Yeah, I had such a different experience with this film. I've criticised people for making this comment before, so I'm sure this will come back at me. When people criticise uh, a film because characters don't behave in, in certain ways, that's, that seems illogical. For example, there's, a, there's one set piece where we see a character and they're putting up jewels, so if something tries to get in a window or a door, a noise will set them off. And in the very next scene, they're lying, sleeping in a hammock outside, and then they're sleeping on the bonnet of a car. And it's like, well, why go to the extent of these characters are so paranoid that they're afraid to get out of their room and then they're just 
happily sunbaking. I mean, those are the kind of moments, and this is superficial criticism, I guess, from a certain no, perspective, no, yeah, yeah. that frustrated me. Yeah, you'll hate my response, but I think that's part of the, the, the kind of dreamlike pastiche of this film. The director's been very, very clear about that, yeah. that, that he's only... Like, that's what he's interested in doing, mm. is these kind of atmospheric, textural ambience. Um, these, these are the elements that are of interest to him. And, and there is an absolute ambivalence to plot mechanics and to these ideological positions. The question is, is in terms of reception, we have options about how we take that, and I, I think that we need to keep dialogue open. When we start telling people that they can't have a response to a film's politics, I think we get into real trouble. Um, and I know that we're not saying that here, but, but a lot of the online discourse that I've seen around it oh, has I've actually been really concerning. Well. Yeah, people um, trying often to frame men, the debate. Often men, and, yeah. and there's certainly a lot of women um, who identify as feminists who love this film. Mm. Um, have written some beautiful, amazing, insightful things about it. Completely off topic, one of the things I love about this film is Detroit. There's this really interesting trend, um, Only Lovers Left Alive, yeah. the Jim Jarmusch film, Ryan Gosling's troubled directorial effort, Lost River. This film, this idea of, of Detroit as, a, as this haunted space, so perfect for horror. Yeah, absolutely. It's just that, that, that kind of wasteland feel. Uh, that, that, that wasteland scene feels so right for the horror film. It follows. I think the take-home message from that is we're allowed to talk about it however we want to <laughs> be. All our responses are valid. So that's what we do here in Platters Cave. We're going to keep the conversation going. Three, triple, ah. From a, a grim horror film to a grim prison film, 1979 Gum. Who's leading on this one? Yeah, I'll jump in and take the lead on Brilliant. this one. This film is about uh, a young man by the surname of Carlin, played here by a very young Ray Winston. And I think it's one of his first roles. 20 years old. Very young Ray Winston, who has just been transferred from one detention centre into the Borstal, this other detention centre, because he's assaulted a, a warden alongside two very other young, fresh-faced males. And so begins a rather grim prison narrative. I think it's worth pointing out that Scum has an interesting production history because originally it was made by director Alan Clark and the writer Roy Minton as a TV show or a telemovie um, for the BBC in 1977 and it was banned before it got to air. So they, I guess in response to that banning, decided to transfer it into a feature film. Some of the cast remain. Ray Winston is, is one of them. Some of the cast were, were added and there's, there are also a number of additions to or alterations made to the to the storyline. One I wanted to come back to, particularly in terms of, of homosexuality, which I think is really interesting, which I only discovered today. But the, the 1979 one wasn't actually aired on TV until 1983, so it has a, a sort of a, a troubled history, particularly in light of the censorship board in Britain, which um, we know of the, you know, the, the, the video nasty era of the 80s. Look, I think it's, this is an interesting film for a number of reasons, even though it has the, very much the feel of a, an 80s UK dad our telly movie and it's also another point of reference here is is martin campbell who was a, a associate producer on this who was responsible for the wonderful tv show 
uh, Edge of Darkness, one of my all-time favourites. I didn't know that. And it has that same sensibility, oh, the, the yeah. kind of the bluish grey, the the sense of of an England very much in decay. And this is one of the one of many points of interest in this, the way it explores this idea of of a masculinity in decay, a social decline, a, a look at power relationships, particularly in Thatcher's England. And among other issues, uh, we have issues of class being played out, race, and racial conflict is really prominent uh, in here. But there's there's another character. Here beyond the Carlin character, which is really fascinating. That's the character of Archer, who's a slightly older man. I think we get a sense he's in his late teens, maybe even his early 20s. And he's the, the intellectual of, of the prison. And in, in many ways, I think he's our point of identification. And this is where I think this narrative, prison narrative, can be clearly distinguished from the kind of the anti-hero narratives of, like, the cool hand Luke, because Carlin, the Ray Winston character, isn't the charismatic anti-hero that we think he might be. Be at the start, and he's certainly not the the innocent um, man searching for justice like the Tim Robbins in a Shawshank Redemption. As the narrative goes on, we start to see Carlin in a very dangerous light because his violence becomes increasingly sort of vicious, <laughs> particularly when it, it crosses over with race and there's a, a violent beating where he assaults a black man from another prison section. And in many ways, this film becomes more sympathetic to those without power, the young people who have seen come in with Carlin at the beginning, the particularly the treatment of blacks. And what we get is a, a kind of, a, I guess, a thesis on the nature of power and institutions it, in England, and that's what I, I thought really recommends this film beyond just a kind of a, a prison genre that we may have seen before. Archer, I think, is such a crucial character to flag on that front. There's quite a lengthy scene where he's in dialogue with a warden, I think, or yeah. somebody even higher up than a warden from memory. Um, it, it's almost like an inbuilt commentary. Yep. Um, where they're, they're just teasing out the ethics of what's going on in the Borstal. It's, it's a remarkable, remarkable scene. And he really has this function that that in a way feels like something from from much older theatre, uh, this sort of pantomime. At one point he writes, is it, I am happy yeah. on a wall. There's something quite marvellous about what Archer is and what he does that really stops you from falling into the world of, of Ray Winstone's character. I, I remember this video packet so well from my youth. It's really burnt into my memory. It was um, on the sh- always on the shelf at my video shop next to Scrubber's which was the all-girl knockoff of Scum from 1983. Who wrote... Was there yeah, Roy Minton was a co-writer on, on Scrubbers, which was billed as Borstal for Girls. Oh. See, nobody talks about Scum and Scrubbers when they talk about the all-female Ghostbusters, oh, do they? True. This is the legacy, people. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you going to call? Not Ray Winston. Um, I was way too scared to watch these films when I was a kid. Way, way, way too scared. Hellraiser, fine. Nightmare on Elm Street, no problem. Scrubbers and, and Scum... Absolutely no way. I mean, scum is brutal. Uh, We really can't underestimate just how violent this film is. But for me, and I think you raised this point quite well, it's the thing that's so disturbing about this film is what it says about power more generally. Um, it's, It's a nasty film, but I think it's more than a historical document. There are bigger messages in it, aside from it being an autopsy about how broken Thatcher's Britain was, as an aside, I love saying Thatcher's Britain. I, know, how I don't know why. There's something about it. Thatcher's Britain. You have to say it in that angry way. The film's strength is that it unpacks the fundamental dynamics of power at its most raw. Scum, fundamentally, just at its core, is absolutely about how the repressed go berserk when they get the chance to become oppressors. I don't know if I can think of any other film that does it in quite the same way that this film does, The Power of Ray Winston, even Baby Ray Winston. 
And in some ways that's what makes this film more disturbing because you kind of expect crusty old Ray Winston with a gruff voice to be tearing people limb from limb, but when he's so fresh-faced and innocent here, and I think that's the strength of him as a performer in here because when he enters the prison, he is unassuming, he's kind of kowtowing to the guards, he cops a massive beating, a brutal beating early on in the film, and then you see that change. He manages to play both sides. And exactly that's the point you make, that the way in which power corrupts. And we've been on side with him. We find out we've been identifying with this man. And now somehow we're culpable because yes. we've been on side with that type of masculinity. We've been rooting for him. He's the underdog. And then suddenly you see the other side. I, f- I found it very difficult to watch this film without retrospectively thinking of later Ray Winston films. It's like, oh, he was like this when he was little. You know, this sort of meta narrative that's crossed all of the different roles that he's played. The, that opening sequence, he's, there's no music and it's just a shot of his face in a van travelling towards the Borstal and it just very slowly pans down and shows his hands in handcuffs. It's just devastating, just absolutely, just a devastating film. And I think there is an urgency to it. I think it's a very contemporary film, aside from the fact that it is so loaded with meaning from its time and production. Um, there's something much... There's a desperation to its message that, that even though Borstals don't exist anymore... Um, the world that Borstal's flourished in is sadly still there's a legacy. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you talked about how violent it is, and, and in some ways, it's not the graphic nature of the violence. It's not the physical violence. It's it's the verbal, the vocal violence, the 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 tirade that this young black guy gets at the beginning of the film. You know, at the hands of the wardens, is so raw and so terrifying. And that's something that I think as the film goes on, we start to sympathise with, you know, the, the black contingent within the within the prison. Particularly one moment where we have, and again, this plays into the lack of education for these young men, where they ask another cellmate to read them a letter because they can't and oh, that becomes their, their moment. And it's almost a kind of a confrontation, but a sort of a denial of the self at that at that same moment. Um, so it's, it's the violence that's under the surface. It's not just those violence. And this film knows when to put pull back like there are probably only two or three really key shocking moments of violence and they are shocking and they are shocking because of that because it's not just we don't get to see graphic beatings on a, on a daily basis well i think we know that it could happen at any moment and the question is not will it happen but when will it happen and when it does happen it's it's almost like a verification of what we knew was going to happen i'm thinking of one particular scene near the end of the film that i will never be able to shake um I mean, there is this long legacy, you know, things like Lord of the Flies, I think, um, is a really useful reference point for a lot of the ideas that are percolating in this film and its relationship between this very specific zeitgeist and these broader themes. It makes it such an important, such an epic film. And just on the point of of sexual violence, I mean, one of the most shocking scenes for me in this film is a a moment of sexual violence. But one of the adaptations from the the TV version to this one is Ray Winston has a, I don't know how explicit it's it's rendered, but a homosexual relationship or or that's, it's implied in the, in the telly version that he has this partner, which has been removed for the film version. That's fascinating. Which I think really reframes his character in a very different light. And and I think I, I read a point that the director or the writer had made he said that was something that he regrets that hadn't made the transition because it gives us a, a point of his vulnerability in the context of the prison it, it's a it's an open wound that the mm-hmm. wardens could exploit and i thought that is interesting in light of what does take place towards the end of the film absolutely you're listening to three triple r this is plato's cave with thomas josh and alex three triple We're going to look now at The Green Prince. Um, A 
after screening in Melbourne last year at the Israeli Film Festival and then getting a small theatrical release, uh, The Green Prince has recently now been released on home entertainment. This is... I don't know anything about this filmmaker, but it's a third feature documentary by a German... I believe he's German, a guy called Nadav Schroman. And it contains... A few similarities to the 2013 Palestinian drama Omar, which we discussed, I think, about this time last year. Both films are about Palestinian men caught up in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict where they were captured by the Israeli army and coerced into becoming a double agent against their own people. Now, in the case of the Green Prince, the young man, Mossab Hassan Youssef, is not only a real person, he's also the son of a fairly prominent Hamas leader. Uh, And while the issues in the fictional film Omar became quite complex for the fictional character, the Green Prince suggests that once Mossab was exposed to the supposedly true nature of Hamas, he very quickly decides to work against them and eventually forms a strong bond with a guy called Gonen Ben Yitzhak, who is the Shin Bet agent in charge of recruiting him as a double agent. This is a really extraordinary story at the core of this film, and, and the film is really working hard to enhance the drama and elements of excitement in this story. And it predominantly does this through extensive reenactments, often made to look like surveillance footage taken by security cameras or drones, plus a bunch of direct-to-camera interviews with Mossab and Gonin that feel scripted, rehearsed and performed. They're more like monologues than responses to questions in an interview. And the end result is something I found Entertaining to a point, but very very distancing and, in the end, not quite right. The issues involved with this conflict are so complex, dense and nuanced, um, and I didn't always buy the explanations on offer in the film for what was going on. Mossab's original radicalisation as a teenager growing up as the son of a Hamas leader, followed by his horrified realisation and change of loyalty after witnessing how brutal members of Hamas could be in prison, it all felt too neat the way it was presented in this film and look I don't expect documentaries to be objective I don't expect them to necessarily show both sides Um, but the presentation of many of the actions of Shin Bet is sometimes being harsh and misguided but ultimately necessary in the face of the Hamas led terrorism it just didn't ring true within the context of this film especially after seeing something like the 2012 documentary The Gatekeepers where six former heads of Shin Bet spoke so critically about the Israeli occupation and how how destabilising many of their actions were. So I just want to be careful here. It's not that I doubt the way this film presented what happened, uh, nor do I know enough about this conflict to make a political statement about it. I have some private opinions, but, boy, I don't feel that they're informed enough for me to say anything publicly. I don't even necessarily believe that it's the role of a documentary to tell the objective truth. My issues with this film are due to the very heavy-handed way it relies on reconstruction of events and testimonials, and as a result, has more of a distancing effect. It, it, it renders the events as seemingly fictional, even though I know they're not. Yeah, I think that's the response I had. This film feels phony. And I think you're right. I think it's not necessarily the truth of, of what they did or didn't do or do or do not believe. It's, it comes down to presentation. And I think it's really difficult to pull off 
dramatic reenactments without coming off as faux, cheap and sensationalist. I mean, this... And it feels like a tabloid program. This is not Errol Morris. This is, there's no sense of, of critical distance or self-reflexive commentary about the nature of documentary filmmaking and truth in these reenactments. And I don't understand, given what you just said, Thomas, and given the drama of the story itself, why any filmmaker would feel the need to amp up the drama and in doing so reduces it to a kind of a level of banal phoniness. And to have both men speak in English and clearly English is their second or third language, is another step which I think removes us from any sense of being able to connect with them because it comes off, as you said, like something that's completely rehearsed. I also want to take umbrage on a political level with this film in the sense of the way in which, like you said, Thomas, it simplifies matters to a preposterous degree. I mean, even even to the point where we have the, the Shin Bet um, handler saying, well, you know, it's not in my nature to be violent and you know that's not something that I would ever do and like the way in which it gives us such an extreme sense of of, or presents such an extreme sense of bias I think is to the detriment of what the film is actually trying to explore as well I don't think it needs to do that and there's one more troubling thing and this is we're going to bookend tonight's show with references to to sex and sexual violence there's a section because this is this film is made in chapter headings and suddenly about half an hour in there's a reference where the former Palestinian turned uh, Israeli double agent talks about this moment from his childhood where he was raped by other Palestinian men and it feels like it's shoehorned in there to say, you know what, this is what Palestinian men are like. If you get cornered by them in an olive grove, watch out. And it's not really referred to until it comes back at the end of the film and, and it feels really inauthentic then. And I thought that's pretty insidious to shoehorn a, a narrative which really isn't linked to what the rest of the film is exploring in order to make a fairly, what I thought, an obvious political point. This film felt to me like it was a History Channel doco or something on the Crime Investigation Network. It, it just felt like a TV doco. Um, I thought a lot of the reenactments were really corny, just just straight out corny. At best, I think that there was a sort of hollow slickness that made them feel like a car ad rather than anything else. I thought Masab was captivating. Um, I think that there was a real earnestness and frankness in his story that was relatively engaging. Um, If I was being generous, I think I'd describe The Green Prince as being a detailed unpacking of somebody in a crisis zone who's consciously developing their own moral code and abiding by it in a a state of crisis. But I'm being generous. I, I think that this is the story that the film is trying to tell. The question is, how well does it do it? Um... It's, again, I would agree with you that it's really indebted to Errol Morris, certainly in terms of its, its uh, aesthetics, but it, it's a far cry from Errol Morris. It really misses that really key self-reflexivity that makes Morris's film so important and so engaging. Questions about the documentary project as a whole, the meaning of truth, none of these things are examined. It's, it's a car ad. It's sort of got this slickness that doesn't really perform any real function. I think the story was ultimately too big for what the documentary itself was capable of doing. And I was quite... So it's based on Mossad's book. I think you mentioned this, Son of Hamas. I didn't mention that, but you're yeah. correct. Yeah, And, and I was looking into this because I thought yep. this is such an amazing story and mm. I'd really like to hear more about this story. And I'm not sure whether The Green Prince really did it for me. And I believe that Mossad himself is working on a fictional adaptation, um, a feature film adaptation of, of his book, Son of Hamas, which I'm really curious to see on the back of The Green Prince. See, weirdly, I think uh, a, a feature fictional film will ring more 
rang truer for me than this. But Omar, I think, rang true, and I wasn't a fan of Omar, but that yeah. certainly rang truer than this. I think Omar had a lot more, yeah, sort of de- depth and complexity than this. It's weird. I, I did sort of like it on a very basic level, but I, I felt so frustrated. Sort of about half an hour in, it just really started to grate on it's me. It's a great and it, story. It's an amazing story. Yeah. And so when they start doing weird off-kilter framing and it just feels so trying to be a bit MTV, it's something I see student documentary makers doing a lot, and it's... I think something they're often encouraged to do to get television jobs to do this style of don't it's just take raw footage, get people to rehearse and act out their testimonials on camera and, and reenact. And it just, I don't know, it has a really, yeah, very TV, old school TV as well, we should say. I mean, contemporary mm, TV is quite absolutely. dynamic. But um, yeah, far cry from Errol, from Errol Morris, who is a genius when it comes to reenactments. And so, I mean, you know, I think Kevin MacDonald has done some really interesting things with reenactments too in some of his films uh, as well. This just, um, I know, it's almost like it, it just doesn't. It's almost an, an, an immature work. I don't, I don't think it's a really uh, developed filmmaker. Yeah, well, this is. Like, I think the, the link to TV is spot on. It's a '90s reality TV show. It's one step removed from Cops and World's Greatest Car Smashes. I mean, in terms of the stylistic approach, it's. It's. I, I found it difficult to separate them. Which yeah. and the, which is a problem because the story deserves more. Absolutely. Uh, check out Omar and check out the Gatekeepers instead. I think. I think they give you a, a much more insightful idea about this story. But I am intrigued to see the feature film based on the green prince you've spent the last hour with us here in plato's cave my name is thomas with josh and alex uh we began the show talking about it follows that is currently screening at cinema nova courtesy of rialto distribution we looked at scum uh which is available on dvd and blu-ray through shock entertainment and we were just talking then about the green prince that's available on dvd and various digital platforms courtesy of man man entertainment all three of us will be back next week we're gonna look at avengers age of ultron which we've all seen, so we can tell you now it's embargoed, embargoed, embargoed. <laughs> they take that very seriously, don't they? It sure is embargoed. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.